Today on Bridging the Gap, I'm honored to have Alex Cavallari, co-founder of Advisor.io, a platform to help advisors market better. Gosh, can't we all use a little bit more of that? Today, Alex and I dive into marketing mistakes. I mean, Alex has so much experience working with advisors and firms. He's seen people struggle with delegation, understanding your client base and who you are communicating with, and creating content to your client base that you're serving, your niche, and also helping to elaborate on your why. There's no doubt he adds value to the firms that he works with, and we can all learn from him today here on Bridging the Gap. This is a great conversation. You're not going to want to miss it. Let's turn it over to Alex Cavallari. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Alex Cavallari, Welcome to Bridging the Gap. So awesome to have you. This is like one of those kind of, you know, you had me on, I have you on, and I'm stoked to have you, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It, it's another cloudy, rainy day in New York City. I, I tell everybody I feel like I live in Seattle on a regular <laughs> basis now, um, but it's supposed to be nice this weekend, which I'm looking forward to. And it's been good. Just cranking. You know how it is. I do. But dude, I, I know that, you know, there's a big theme going on in New York City and it's called leaving the city. Um, yeah. And so if you're ever interested, you know, we're welcoming people down here in Atlanta. We're bringing people from California and from New York. So, you know, if you ever want to take part in that theme, I'm happy to kind of show you around the city down here. Yeah. You know, I, I would say I would. I actually, um, my wife's family's from here. And we just made an offer on a house, actually. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Contrary to belief with the with the uh, with the housing market where it's at right now, we uh, <laughs> we're still looking. We've been uh, we've we were looking for like six months. We finally found one, and fingers crossed. Knock on wood. That's incredible. Where is it in the city? Is it in the city? Is it on the island? It's in the burbs. I haven't I haven't lived in the city in like probably four years or three years or so. But I was in, I lived in the city for. Close to ten years. So from from that standpoint, I got I got my my city fix in. I'm good. I I have no desire to to ever live here again. <laughs> You're like my wife. My wife got her city fix in. It was like five years or four years, and she's like, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. You know, that's the one thing I I regret. I never got my city fix, and you know, that's okay. I, I don't regret it too much, but I, I do I do think it would have been fun at that time. Now it's it's just way past my prime. So yeah, uh, it's not there. Um, well, congratulations, man. That's awesome. I mean, perfect time to be buying a house. You know, rates sky high right now, moving yep. higher, right? Prices like unreal. What a what an interesting, interesting environment we're in. And, you know, you're I, I'm excited to talk about how y'all are helping, you know, really just the the financial advisor, as you say, level up their marketing. Give us the story. Give us how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I'll kind of just start from the beginning and I'll give the 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 concentrated version or the the truncated version, but I went to Syracuse in, in upstate New York after college. Graduated, did not want. I'm from Michigan, so I didn't want to go back to Michigan. It was either go back to Michigan and work for my dad and his factory, or stay in New York. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm taking the leap, moving to New York. I was a communications major in college. Jumped to New York City with no job. Essentially, was like, all right, I got to start applying to jobs. This was in 2010, so this was like the job market was like slowly crawling back, but it was like not to 2012 or 13 levels. It was people were inching towards hiring. So it was a tough market at the time when I graduated, ended up landing a job on the sales desk of a headhunting shop. So I ended up basically making like 60 to 70 calls a day to heads of engineering, CTOs, hiring for designers and developers. It was 
a brutal grind. I mean, I was just on the phone was basically taped to my head, just making calls every single day. And then from that standpoint, was there for about eight months. I actually was the top producer the eight months I was there in the company, which was pretty cool. And then I, I so what, what happened was when I started getting marketing is that as a headhunter, especially back in the day, you had to really market yourself. You have to really sell yourself. So from that perspective, I ended up finding my biggest client on Twitter. I was a CTO on Twitter. So I was like, huh. I was like just tweeting, trying to find like do some Twitter research. And I ended up tweeting at him. We ended up exchanging, going back and forth on Twitter and had that conversation. And then basically it was like this marketing thing, there's some here, digital marketing thing when it wasn't really a thing back then, but I knew I couldn't make the step from a sales desk to a, to a pure marketing role. I knew I had to build out kind of my portfolio and just start to get some practice. So I started to take on some side projects. I ended up luckily landing a job at BlackRock just completely out of the blue. Like, I don't know how I <laughs> just in general, but I was still thankful to this day to the woman who, who, who hired me there and then was in a, a marketing role there and then stayed at BlackRock for about seven years. And then from there ended my career at BlackRock in the iShare in the digital division, working in the iShares business, running big swing campaigns, you know, big spend campaigns was running on the, I worked on the product side from a digital perspective. So I started, I built my foundational marketing chops at BlackRock, you know, being able to work with some of the smartest people that I could ever work with. And I tell everybody it was, it was the best place to grow up from a, a skill set perspective. I learned how to pitch. I learned how to upsell. I learned how to, to, to manage up with bosses, with very senior people. I landed, I, I learned how to basically organizationally operate. And so from there, after I got that seven-year itch, jumped to a smaller asset manager, got recruited over to a smaller asset manager, signed investments to run marketing and strategy for them. And my eighth year or ninth year, I would say, in, in, in biz, the business world, ran marketing and strategy for them for four years. And then essentially what we saw at Scion was we Scion was an alts manager. So from that perspective, we had a couple of products, but generally we had to find other ways to engage with advisors. So what I would do is I would go to these road shows and I would basically say to a lot of these advisors, Hey, we do value add and we're going to help you digitize your practice. So I do these presentations on how to build a marketing strategy from scratch, how to think about your marketing, how to build a content strategy. And this was back in 2018, you know, 20, 2017. And so from that perspective, we started to get a lot of inquiries after those events. Like advisors would literally just come up to me and they would say, hey, do you have services here? Do you have an offering here? Do you have a product here? Do you have a platform here? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like the asset manager side, I got to a volume point, fast forward a few months. And I was like, all right, I got to take a step back, see if there's a business opportunity here. You know, went to the, the CEOs of Scion, talked about the idea, started working on it. And then basically we launched in 2020. So we, we started working the, the product in late 2019, launched into beta in January 2020, launched out of beta in May 2020, right into the heart of pandemic. <laughs> and then we've been live since, since May 2020. We are 50% marketing tech and content and 50% consulting in what we deem as agency light. So we're giving advisors access to a MarTech platform that has pre-built content functionality for automation, 
and just being able to edit a number of different pieces across the funnel from a content perspective, but also pairing them with an ongoing marketing consultant that can hold them accountable, help them navigate things that they want to do outside of our platform, like launch a podcast or launch a video series or plan an event. So we're not only there to give them access to the content sidekick, but also to help be their sounding board and strategic partner as it relates to their marketing. So are y'all still associated with the asset manager? Are you still kind of, is that the other side of the the founder is the, the asset manager side? Yeah. So they're, they're, off from them? Yeah. yeah. So they're an investor in the business, completely separate entity. They just happen to be an investor in the business. Yeah. That's great. So here, I want to dig into, you know, you, you put in some of the pre-show notes, the, your philosophy is simple and you, there's about five different steps that I, I want to walk through. I'm not going to walk through all of them. Well, hell we may, I don't know. This is, this is on my podcast, so we can do We can do whatever we want, right? Exactly. If you want to go through all yeah. five of them, we can do it. But you know, you talk about the philosophy of marketing because I think that this is such a unique marketing niche of financial advisors. And I think that financial advisors are so I always love talking to marketers that focus on financial advisors because I just think that financial advisors just, we don't get it in the marketing side, right? We don't know how to market. We deliver so much value to our clients day in and day out, but we don't know how to market that value. We just deliver Mm -hmm. it. We're just doers, doers, doers. And we don't know how to tell people that we are good at what we do. And, you know, your, your first step of your philosophy is you need the right foundation before you can scale. That sounds like any business advice, right? You need a solid foundation before you can scale. But I'm interested to know what that means from a marketing side. Does it mean mm-hmm. the business has to have a foundation or is it a, as a different foundation that you need to be able to scale on the marketing side? Yeah. So there's there's three buckets of foundation basically that we, we talk about and I personally believe in as it relates to operationally from a marketing perspective. And, and you need to have these these three buckets tightened up, filled up before you can start to actually scale your marketing and execute your marketing effectively. The first bucket is your value prop. Understanding you as a financial advisor, you have a unique differentiator. You understand how your service offering is going to be different from others. You understand exactly who you're going after from a demographic or a niche perspective. You're very clear on the needs of your audience. You're very clear on the psychographic aspects of your audience. So what are the emotional elements of how they approach money, how they approach financial planning, how they approach basically the, the things that are surrounding money. So that could be family, that could be education, that could be work, that could be pretty much anything because it's all connected. But essentially, you really want to help define your value proposition, your mission statement, how you talk about your services, how you talk about how you partner with individuals, the the individuals that you're going after. And then also really getting to a place where from a messaging perspective, you can truly have that elevator pitch ready to go in any situation. And that is able to, if someone asks you what you do and how you help people, you can nail it in 30 seconds. 30 seconds because that's what it takes to actually cut through the noise and have a conversation and be able to make an impact or be able to make some type of impression on someone. So that's the first bucket. The second bucket is your technical foundation, right? So your technical foundation is everything we talk about all the time. It's your tech stack. It's your website is built out properly. It's your CRM. It's your any marketing email systems that you have in place. So getting to a place where you have your technical systems, not only in place, but talking to each other. 
So from that standpoint, like if someone fills out a form on your website, does that flow to your CRM? Does that flow to your email, your email marketing system? How are those connected? Does your email marketing system flow back to your CRM if there's a campaign ran? So from, from a technical standpoint, you want to make sure that you have your tech stack tight. It doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to have 50 tools. You have to have three to four tools that work really, really well for you as an advisor that you can come back to, that you can use consistently, that you're going to use consistently. And that could include, you know, editing tools like Canva or Camtasia for video, if you're doing some more content creation, but really getting to a place where you have your technical foundation rocking before you can scale any type of marketing. And then the third bucket that we talk a lot about is your systems and your templates. So we bucket systems and templates together. And what I mean by that is your systems are operationally, what are the systems that are in place for you to, one, create content, whether it's written content or video content, and then two, essentially, what are the systems that you have in place to be able to effectively react to either inbound inquiries or react to swings within things that you can't control, whether that's market events or whatever the case may be. So having those systems in place are, are, are incredibly is incredibly important. And then having the templates in place to be able to execute. So for example, the only way to really scale marketing effectively is that you have templates. So templates for graphics, templates for presentations, templates for videos. Like for example, we do this with all our clients and we do this for ourselves even. We essentially have templates for every video that's produced. So if you're producing a video clip, it carries the same template. So if you ever look at my stuff on LinkedIn, like you'll see the videos have a very similar look and feel. The content's different within the context of the video, but the visual is the same. So getting those templates in place, your email templates, you should have four different types of email templates, a newsletter template, a nurture template, an outreach template, a referral template. These are the things that you have in place where you don't need to create from scratch when you're building new content or you're executing on your marketing. And templates are truly the, it's the most underrated, I don't want to call it a hack, but it's like the most underrated aspect of content creation that exists within marketing ever, basically. You know, I, I, it's so funny because I think about, I can hear advisors saying, well, we're personalized. We're white glove service. Like we don't want it to be, we don't want it to come across as templated information, but you're so right because you know, when you need to act, you don't have time necessarily to go build and you need to have, when you have the time to build, you need to put it all into place to be able to be as efficient and effective as possible. You know, I'm in, I'm interested in that because, you know, it's basically like you need to have your, your what is your why? Mm-hmm. What is your tech stack, tech infrastructure? And then you got to have your systems and operations manual. Of those three, what's the most difficult for advisors to execute on of, of those foundational elements? Where do you see that they struggle or they always like lessen their ability to to excel in that in, in those areas. So really, it's it's to me, it's the first one. It's the mm. the value prop and the differentiators. Now, the re I think the reason why is because our 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 industry is very tight knit. You know, everybody knows what everybody's doing. It's 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 got to be. And I I would I would bet this if they did a study on this that like the wealth management industry is probably one of the more tight knit slash, you know, the everybody knows everybody industries that I think 
exists to be to be quite frank and i think it's it's very easy to look at advisor to the left of you look at two advisor right from you and say okay they're doing this i'm going to do this and i'm going to mimic this or i'm going to make it look like this and that's very and that's something you see that's common i mean you see this as an advisor yourself right that, that's something you see from firms where it's it's very easy to become a sea of same with 50 other advisors 100 of other advisors additionally to that it's very hard, especially for younger advisors to say, I'm going to serve these individuals, which I get, right? When you start a business, whether you're an advisor, whether you're anybody, you just want to get business in the door, right? So you'll take anything. You're like, all right, they want to work with me. I'm good. Let's go. Let's go. Who cares if they fit my my demographic or not or fit my long-term vision or not? But the earlier that you can really start to draw the line in the sand on this is who I'm going to serve and this is why I'm going to serve these people, it's only going to help you exponentially grow, not only from a, just a business perspective because you know exactly who you're servicing and that, that, bec- that helps make your service model more scalable, but also from a marketing perspective. It is very hard to create content one week for the pre-retiree versus content another week for the, the 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 young family looking to start a college fund or buy a home. It's very hard, purely from a, one, an energy perspective, especially if you're a solo shop. And then two, just like one week you're thinking about someone else, the next week you're thinking about another, a completely different audience. So we see advisors having difficulty with defining their, their unique value prop and the work seems so conceptual, the work to do it, kind of the what you need to do to get there. But it is truly so important to have that defined. And that ends up dictating your website content, your website messaging. It ends up dictating your presentation messaging. It ends up dictating your email marketing messaging. It ends up basically fueling everything that you're creating. Like, our taglines on our website are purely from a deck I created back in mid-2019 that define who we are as a business. And so from that standpoint, you got to get that focused and very, very clear because that fuels everything that you're doing. I think that that's such a hard thing. I, I agree because I, you know, advisors, as you say, they grew just by taking anybody and everybody. But in order to be effective marketing, you got to go deep with one niche or niche or you're just going to be you're going to be good at it but you're not going to be great at anything. It's the same slang, it's the same saying as everything as we all have heard before. Now, you know, I want to go on two other points from your philosophy that I, I really love. You say value add content is the entry point to your brand and should be prioritized long term. Now, mm-hmm. tell I, I want tell people the definition. What's the difference between value add content and just regular old content, right? What yeah. determines because everybody thinks whatever they say is valuable. Right. So that's value add content. Right. But what is the true definition of value add versus regular content? Yeah. So essentially, the way I think about value add content and how I define content strategies is there's like three buckets of of content that you can kind of have. You can have value add content, you can have product or service content, which is content that's talking about your products or service. And then you can have, there's probably four. Then you can have brand content content that talks about your brand, your your practice, the people within your brand, your employees, whatever the case may be. And then you can have a fourth bucket, which is kind of lifestyle, talking just how does your, your personal life integrate with your business life. Value-add content 
to me and how I define it is content that you're putting out that leaves someone with some type of actionable takeaway on a topic. And essentially the way you can think about it is if someone left that video or left that blog that you just put out, they could effectively go execute it on their own or they could go dive deeper to do something on their own. And so you're giving them that nugget to be able to take it and do something with it, whether that's navigating a specific financial situation or doing deeper planning on their cash flow, whatever it is, you're giving them that nugget that they can then say to themselves, I could go do this on my own, but most of the time people don't execute on their own, right? That, but that leads them to start to potentially follow you more, to start to engage with your content more. And then at a certain point over time, it builds and builds and builds and builds. And then they finally raise their hand to have a conversation. That's why you value our content is something that allows someone to take, take a step back from whatever they just read, watched, or listened to and say, okay, I can go execute on X, Y, or Z at the end of the day if I really, really wanted to. You know, value add content. I, I I think back to something you said, you know, earlier about this industry being such a, a close, like we hold everything close to our chest type of industry, right? We don't want to share a lot, but you know, with value add content, it's the idea of you know, basically, you're giving something away for free. You're 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 hoping on that idea of of saying, I'm going to give you something for free, and in return, you're going to actually be like, I don't want to do it on purpose. And I think where some people go the wrong way on value add content that I've seen at least is they go and make it so complex that people are like, it's so Mm -hmm. complex that I can't do it. But in what you're saying, which I agree with is make it so simple that they can do it, but they, you know, they're not going to do it in their own mind. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's the difference of it. But how do you help people understand because we're so analytical in nature in this industry to keep it from being so analytical and complex and just being like, just simple, effective value that people can do. I mean, what are some rules that you use to help build content that way? Yeah. So it comes down to just asking yourself the the question of whenever you're writing a piece or creating a piece, it's would my audience, one, want to read it and would they understand it? And those those two questions are so simple and they seem like pretty, pretty obvious. But those two questions, after you write a piece, and you're, say you're editing your own stuff, right? You're editing your own video, you're editing your own video script, you're editing your own blog post. Going, taking a step back and say, sit, asking yourself those two questions would effectively probably have you cut out half of whatever you just wrote and also change the terminology of whatever you just wrote to more simple language. I do it myself from a marketing perspective sometimes. I have to catch myself because I get into the weeds of talking about you know, lifetime value, cost per lead, cost per click. We're looking at a hundred different metrics across open rate, click-through rates, engagement rates, read rates, bounce rates. And, and then I have to take a step back and say, no one that I'm talking to is going to understand like what the hell I'm saying. So that's really where you have to start, take a, take to just, just, just reset and, and ask yourself, is this something that the end person that I'm writing it for, and that's where you got to really get, get really clear on your demographic, are they going to get it? And if not, and you'll end up seeing that like you'll probably just cut out half the stuff you even say or just dumb it down to a point where it's very specific and very scannable. And the other thing on, on the scannable point is 
The more things you can make scannable, the better. Lists, bullets, uh, breaking up content with graphics, short, quick, two-minute videos, stuff that really just gets to the point, allows people to scan. We're so glued to our phone. We're getting so much information every day. People don't want to read barely anything anymore. They barely want to watch anything anymore. They just want to keep skipping and scrolling and jumping and and just moving, right? We're all becoming like hyper-focused on this idea that the, which, which social has caused, unfortunately, but it's caused us to be like kind of hyperactive against our, our activity on our phones. And so you got to really make things punchy to the point, scannable and very, very easy to consume. You know, the, I, I think that there's a great point about reading your things again, reading your posts, reading your scripts, whatever it is, and trying to make it as, how can you use as few of words as possible to get your point across? And, you know, many leaders and some of the best thought leaders in the industry always talk about, you know, the fewer the words, the more impactful it can be if you can get your point across in fewer words. And so you should always try to do that. And it just helps with the value that the people take away from it. You know, the last point of the philosophy, and then I want to talk about a few other things with you is you, you, you mentioned on, num- on one of them that you can do a lot with a little, you just need the right players. And this talks about delegation and, and all of that dive into that a little bit. What do you mean by that? I I get what you mean, I think a little bit, but dive into it for us. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've worked on marketing teams that have 400 people on them, right? I've worked on marketing teams that have two people on them. I work on a team that we have anywhere from 10 to 14 on a given month working with us right now. The most optimal teams that I've ran so I've been managing people for, I guess, you know, going on five years now. The most optimal teams that I've ran in general, it does not matter in terms of the size of the team. Basically, how you need to define it is what are your biggest strengths as a core player? So if you're very good at selling, if you're very good at content creation, if you're very good at relationship building, what are your core strengths as an advisor? What are your core strengths as a business owner? What are you good at, essentially? And so from that perspective, getting clear on that and then identifying how where your strengths are and how they're going to map to what you want to accomplish for your business. So essentially, if you want to become a household brand with software engineers and you're extremely good at relationship building with that demographic, but you don't know what to write about or what to create or anything along those lines. Like you may have to hire someone to create content with you that knows that audience well. So it's first identifying your strengths, mapping to how your strengths fit to the business goals that you want to accomplish, and then filling in a few key players to help execute on the places you're not strong. And as a business owner, we all know we have to be strong in multiple areas. It is, you know, if you're 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 not strong in multiple areas as an entrepreneur, it's 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 very hard to build a business. But what I would say is that there's, you can't do everything. And that's what you have to just realize. I I've struggled with that myself. Generally, like I've gotten to a place where I've had to have some hard conversations and like, you know, when you're working 16 hour days on these, these stints to build something that gets to a place where like, it's just not a sustainable practice. So you have to take a step back and say, okay, where are my weakest points right now? Or, or what can I not tackle from a priority list perspective? And who can I have to f- fill in to supplement that 
over time. And that's where I think it's, it's just being super transparent about what you're good at and being cool with not being good at everything. And that's totally fine. In addition to that, you want to hire people that are effectively either be- currently better than you at something or have the ability to just take the reins over six months or a year on certain things. Because what I've also learned too is that from a skill set perspective, when it comes to hiring, you have to make, and yes, culture is important, fit is important. Ever, all of those elements of the soft skills are important as it relates to hiring, but skill set, operational skill set is so critical. So when, my only piece of advice for anybody when it comes to hiring, when you're hiring, make sure you test for the technical skills that you need in the role, whether that's project oriented, having them do a project before you make the offer, whatever it is, because if you just go, if you just go off the resume and take the word for it, you can get yourself into a little bit of a corner. So from that standpoint, really getting to a place where like you're hiring the right people with the right skills to help fill the gaps that you need within your business. It's such a powerful thing to think about, right? Is, is as a leader of an organization, if you want to be, if you want to grow your business, you have to rely on other people and you have to be good at delegating, right? You have to mm-hmm. understand what is your purpose? What is your value? And then go find people to help support you in doing what you may not want to do. And, and I, that was a realization I came to just within one of our businesses on our technology side. I, I just said, you know what? My biggest value is being out there and talking about what we're doing. It's not necessarily being in the grind every single day. And I need to bring in a chief operating officer, someone that can help me run the day-to-day and help me manage the people. And you start to get exponential value. It's hard to give up things because you can. They, everybody does it differently than how you do it. But it's so powerful. The The Two, I have two other topics real briefly I want to talk about real quick is you, you talk about building your brand momentum, right? And as a, as a content writer, as a marketer, you're basically saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it just becomes, it can sometimes become so boring. You're like, are people still listening to me? But they are. And, and marketing takes, takes a long time. I'm curious how you help, how do, what are some pieces of advice to help people stay motivated to keep that momentum because you need to do it forever and you're not going to get an ROI by just doing it for a month and then be like, I always think about like you set up your website and you're like, all right, now all the phone calls are going to come in. Like that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. How do you help people keep that momentum to in that energy to keep going uh, on that yeah. side of it? Yeah. So first thing I would say is you're going to get to your point, like you're going to get very sick of hearing yourself say the same thing. But to be honest, repetition, I tweeted about this the other day. Repetition is more true, true feelings. Repetition is more important than creativity and marketing. Mm. It just is. You look at a company like Fisher Investments, you know, they're saying the same thing. They're, they're, they're different. Their message. Have you ever seen their commercials? Like their messaging is like fee only fiduciary, and that's literally their entire commercial. But they literally run the commercial a hundred times a day. Now they have the budgets too, but they're out there. They're in your LinkedIn feed all day with ebooks and guides and downloads. And they have this repetition to their business. You look at any advertising, all these big con- consumer brands, Pepsi, Coca Cola, Nike, Apple, whatever the case may be. You see them everywhere from an advertising perspective. And it's about, yes, some of them have like Nike and Apple are examples where they have multi-million dollar, billion dollar marketing budgets and, and you know, they're, but they're, the key here is that repetition is 
so important and you're going to get so nauseous if you're hearing yourself talk and say the same stuff and cover the same content, but just keep doing it because the fact of the matter is a fraction of your audience will see that message and it's so important to keep that going. The other thing I would say here is that keeping motivated, it's about stacking your wins from a marketing perspective, especially early on. So early on in marketing, a lot of the quantitative data that comes through is going to be abysmal. Like I'm talking, especially if you're not running any paid, I'm talking your podcast going from like 10 downloads to 18 downloads or like 42 downloads to 56 downloads. You're not going to, and that's going to be annoying, right? You're going to be like, why haven't I jumped 30, 40, 50, 60? Or, you know, you're going to have two inbound leads to three inbound leads or no inbound leads to one inbound lead. So quantitatively in those first six months, eight months, 10 months from a marketing standpoint, it is very frustrating quantitatively unless you have the budgets to fuel it with some pain as it relates to like momentum on the builds. What I would say is that the best way to keep yourself motivated is stack your qualitative wins. So that could be a comment on a post that you had. That could be an email from a client. That could be someone at a party saying, I see your content more on LinkedIn. That could be a feedback feedback from a colleague, whatever it is. Those qualitative signals that you get in your marketing early on will be so powerful to help you understand that you're doing something right. And it's important to, to, to recognize them when they come in and basically like bottle them up bottle them up to where like if you get two comments in one week of like, whoa, you keep me motivated or like I, I so appreciate you talking about, you know, restricted stock units because I am employee three at a startup, startup, whatever the case may be. That is so important to, to stack. And those small qualitative wins eventually will get outplaced by the quantitative over time, right? Eventually we'll get replaced by you jumping from 100 to 200 to 300, whatever you're trying to do. But early on, the motivation comes from the qualitative feedback that you're getting from people. I, the qualitative feedback, it reminds me of just financial planning, right? Like it's so hard to wrap your head around saving for 35 years for retirement when you're you know 30 years old. And it's like, gosh, that's more than a lifetime away. So how do you keep motivated? It's those qualitative, those like small wins along the way. Like, ooh, I was able to save for a trip. Ooh, I was able to save for a house. Ooh. And you just like bottle those up. You're like, I can do this. And you just start focusing on those along with your plan and you start to kind of really build this framework. So it's a very similar mentality that we teach and preach inside of our business, but we sometimes can't live by on our day to day. You know, so I want to wrap it up with before I get into our just our standard wrap up questions, marketing mistakes, right? The biggest mistakes advisors face when marketing their business. I just want your I want two. Okay. One or two of your biggest marketing mistakes that advisors put with it when it comes to their business. A short term mindset. I think it's just exactly what you said. It's it's short term mindset and it's trying to cut corners to get more ROI in a short term. I, I think that's the biggest one is like, if you think you're going to build a marketing plan in 30 days, or if you think you're going to build a, you know, a, you're going to have a marketing program fueling your business in 45 days, it's just not realistic. Coca-Cola has been marketing their business for decades. You know, these business have been out there for, for 30, 40, 50 years doing this. So I think from that standpoint, that is 
something where it's just have a long-term mindset, 12, 18, 24 months at least to test things out. The second one I would say is getting to a place where you're not clear on who you're serving. If you're muddy on who you're serving, you'll never be able to sustain momentum because, and that is in any business, it's just too too sporadic. It's too wide cast. It's very hard, especially in a high cost service business, which is what advisors are in. You know, we're not selling a consumer product that costs 10 bucks that you could sell to anybody on the shelves of the CVS. So from that perspective, like really getting to a place where you're very clear on who you're going after and defining that is another mistake I see because you just jump to the next demographic or jump to the next thing and you just get frustrated and spin your wheels. I think that those both encompass, there's no easy way out. There's no easy way to be a a great marketer, right? You can't just go and jump from one thing to the other and be good, right? Because you're just now resetting the cycle of of how long it's going to take. So if you spend a year on one and then you go to another, it's just going to be that much more difficult. All right. So we're going to wrap it up with the two main questions I always ask. The first one, you know, I always, I'm a big, you know, fan of being a lifelong learner. I love to read. I think that you can find a lot of lessons in, in books. And so I'm curious, do you have any, you know, maybe on the marketing front, maybe on the business front, maybe on the neither yeah. front, one book that you think is just a great one for, for listeners to go out and take a look at? Yeah. So I haven't read a lot of books recently since all my time is consumed with kids and work and life. But I probably the better one I've read, read in the past three or four years is Shoe Dog, but a Shoe Dog, the Phil Knight story. You know, I think the the concept of what Nike did, the, the what he went through to get Nike off the ground in some of those early days where he was just like grinding, selling shoes. It's, 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 it helps create an understanding of like even the biggest people out there who started these businesses went through what a lot of people are going through nowadays. You know, you look at the the whole Bezos picture of him in the, the famous picture of him in the office. Yeah, these, I, you know, I think, I think Apple started from a garage. It, it's one of those things where reading the stories about these, these entrepreneurs that started in very similar positions, I think it allows you to really create a reality around the possibilities of what business can, can be in the future. So that was a good one that, that I read cover to cover, which is rare for me because I usually <laughs> stop at you know, three-fourths and then move on. <laughs> <laughs> One of the better books around. That Phil Knight story is incredible of how he just continued to drive and just you know the challenges. Like you said, it, all businesses go through and you just forget these large corporations that they went through all the same shit that we've gone through starting a yeah. business, right? Uh, it's the same. All right. Second thing, and I got this from Barron's and when I went to their conferences, what's one actionable piece of advice that you think that people can take away from the conversation today that they can impact and help themselves tomorrow with? Yeah, I think it's 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 getting, it's taking a step back. And if there's one thing you want to ask yourself is, do you want marketing to be a core part of your biz dev? And, you know, as an advisor, there's a lot of advisors that think they want to market their business, but actually don't. They get to a place where, you know, they think they want they want to have marketing help fuel what they're doing from a growth perspective, and, and at the the reality is they don't, and that's okay. You know, it's not a, if you want to grow your business in the way you want to grow your business, but you know, at the end of the day, there's there's two ways to grow a business, right? There's sales and there's marketing. And we're, we're all doing them at some point. Everybody's in sales. Even if you're an advisor, I'm in sales every day as running a business. We're all selling something. 
We're all marketing something, but I think it's figuring out, do you want content? Do you want 2022 digital marketing to be a core part of your, your biz dev? And just having a very clear, clear conversation with yourself on it will help lead you to what you want to execute on. That's great. You got to make that decision and go all in. You can't just half-ass it and expect yeah. to get results. Very good, man. Alex, I so, you know I appreciate you having me on your podcast. I appreciate you coming on our podcast. Our listeners are probably going to want to continue to follow you and all of your ideas and your philosophy around marketing if they want it. How can they go find you on social media? How can they find you? What website? How can they get in touch with you? Tell us everything. Yeah. So we have a podcast called The Advisor Lab. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, all about biz dev, practice management for advisors. And then just follow me on Twitter at Al Cavallari, LinkedIn, wherever, and happy to chat and dive into whatever. Alex Cavallari, hey, congratulations on the house. You could have given the address. People could send you some mailings, right? Going old school <laughs> with direct mailings, but we're not going to do that. I appreciate you taking some time, man, out of your busy day to, to spend it with us and share your marketing knowledge. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to staying in touch. Stay well, be well, and uh, thanks again for your time, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 